Do you have multiple hours in the middle of the workday to go down to the tenderloin and plead with the Board of Supervisors to listen to reason on issues like homelessness and crime? Well, if you're like most San Franciscans, the answer is no, because you have a full-time job, you have children, or you have some other obligation. And that's a problem for our democracy. It's a problem because San Francisco relies on something called public comment. Public comment is, or at least should be, a chance for the public to come tell the Board of Supervisors about the city's problems. However, it's simply not feasible for most of us with obligations to participate. As a result, public comment and the supervisor's opportunity to hear what they think are the people all too often devolves into a game that is strictly for the rich, the retired, and the rejected. One man, though, is trying to change that. His name is Jay Connor B. Ortega, and he has been going to public comment for the last couple months to be the voice for those folks in San Francisco who are working, who are taking care of children, who have other obligations, and know that this city simply does not work for them anymore. Jay Connor B. Ortega has not only been doing that, he's been uh, uh, making a splash on Twitter and been involved with Iconic D3, which is an up-and-coming neighborhood group seeking to make the city and especially District 3 better. He's a fascinating person to sit down and have a conversation with, and luckily enough for us here at the Briona Society, he sat down with us this past week. It was a great conversation. We can't wait to share it with you. But before we do, please remember to subscribe to this podcast. Hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher. We just don't want you to miss any of the great episodes we have coming up. And if you have an extra moment, we always love it when you leave us a review. So with all of that said, the Briona Society is thrilled to bring you Jay Connor, B. Ortega. Welcome to the Briona Society podcast. I'm joined today by Jay Connor, B. Ortega. Jay Connor, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here and an honor. Well, we are so excited to have you. You've been making a splash everywhere that a political voice should be making a splash. You've been at City Hall, outside the Ninth Circuit, and especially on X, formerly Twitter. I've got questions for you about all that work. But before we jump into it, can you tell everybody, those who aren't maybe as familiar with your work, about your background growing up here in the city and and how you came to be involved in San Francisco politics? Yes. So... I am actually a funny thing as I tell people because they look at me and they think, oh, this guy is he's well off, he, he's highly educated. But the reality is I have been homeless for 20 years. I started off in a homeless shelter and my family and I, we stayed in a homeless shelter in the East Bay. We eventually hobbled enough money together to actually move into one of those motel rooms that you would find on the side of a freeway. And we would rent out that room every first of the month. We pay the full month's rent. My father passed away when I was 13. So out of nowhere, this young 13-year-old is now suddenly the man of the house. And uh, I have a lot, I have about seven siblings. I consider them full siblings, even though they're half siblings, but I have a lot of siblings. And out of all of them, I was the one who had to step up and say, well, we're in a situation. We got to make money somehow. So uh, I did any job I could, took any opportunity, didn't matter what the job was, as long as it's legal, but took the opportunity, did any job, raised up money, brought the money back home to the family. I was outed for being in, uh, by the letter B in the LGBTQ community. 
family is a heavily religious, did not like that very much. I would get tossed out plenty of times and then brought back in because again, I was the only one who actually was a functioning job. What actually ended the relationship I had with my family was my politics and of course my LGBTQ side really alienated the family. They finally said enough that we can't have you here. Your ideas differ from ours too much. And uh, we said we departed from each other and I went back to the streets. I, again, did any job I could, didn't care what it was, um, hobbled enough money to get together, and then finally got my apartment here in San Francisco. Look, I'll, under, I'll understate the obvious, which is that that sounds like a, a difficult road to walk. You, you mentioned that political party was was a part of the mix there. Tell me a, a bit more about that, and, and are you... Where do you stand now on political party affiliations? So it's actually quite interesting. My So my family is really hard conservative Republicans, and I myself am a Democrat. I grew up and I was a heavy radical. I was a member of the Communist Party, a member of the DSA. The mindset, at least, of course, is not because I'm crazy, but that when you're growing up and you're a young person, the one thing you really want to do is to help the world. The one thing I've grown up as being a young person is you always want to do good. So I automatically fell in with these hardcore tenants of the Democratic Party. And I, going, becoming homeless, you start to realize that life, you can wish for a bunch of things. You wish things that were a certain way. And then you get so frustrated with yourself. I actually got so pulled back to the center and became more moderate. It's actually a quite funny story. So Erica Sandberg, for those who don't know, she's an independent reporter of San Francisco. San Francisco Beat is her podcast. She put us it on Twitter, an invitation for people who disagree with her, come out and debate me. And as this young radical who, of course, the one thing we're taught in the most radical sense is we have to go out and defeat these people. Like there's, there's no question whatsoever. So I was eager to come out and defeat this person. So I go out there, I accept her offer. We walk around and I found out I had more in common with her than I did with those I claimed to be part of the radicals. Interesting. But so that was the crazy part about it. And because of her and because of being willing to hear conversations with other people, I have become so moderate in my position that uh, it was a huge turnaround. I, you can say I'm a recovering radical. And it sounds like you, you didn't stop there. You're working with a group called Iconic D3. Uh, many people have probably heard of Iconic D3. For those who haven't heard of Iconic D3, can you tell us a little bit about it and, and a little about your role? Yes. So in San Francisco, we our city is divided up by districts. And I have the pleasure, I say, to live in District 3, which encompasses the Fisherman's Wharf, Chinatown, Union Square, the Financial District, North Beach, and all those wonderful places. So we call, we've, it was me and a couple of community members who came together and we formulate our community organization called Iconic D3. And what led us to name it Iconic D3 is because, well, if you come to San Francisco, chances are you come there for the cable car or uh, Chinatown or even North Beach or even Fishman's Wharf. So we're thinking, oh, look, Iconic D3 fabulous neighborhood and a fabulous name for it. And the role that we are playing, especially with Iconic D3, is a lot of people, they complain with everything that's going on, but they never knew exactly why the problems were 
popping up as bad as they were. So me and my fellow neighbors decided, you know what, we're going to form an organization. We are going to record and copy out what our policy leaders are doing and make it easy and simple for people, average people like you and I to say, oh, so that's what they're doing. Because I encounter people all the time who don't even know who their even mayor is. They don't even know who mm-hmm. their supervisor is. And uh, so what we do is we try to make information so simplized that people can understand it. Because if you're working a nine to five job, you don't have time to go to your local board meeting or find out what policies are being developed. So and that's what we have definitely came together to do. It's a fantastic idea. You know, I, I had a supervisor once who said one of San Francisco's weaknesses is you have a sliver of the population, a, a tiny sliver that is hyper engaged in politics and a substantial majority that is completely tuned out. Now, I don't know if it's that extreme. And, and like you say, I, I don't know that you can blame folks who are working as hard as folks in this city work that they don't you know, have time to spend all day on politics. But it seems like there is a desperate need for exactly what you're describing, somebody to bring the message and the feelings of the majority of folks who are working hard in this city to the leaders who oftentimes seem to only have an ear for that thin sliver that tells them, the elected governing officials, what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. We have a small sliver of radicals who would like to change and subjugate our lives to fit their version of what a utopia is. And the trickiest thing is, is that because, like I said, we're a majorly Democratic Party city, they get the opportunity to put a D next to your name, and then everyone assumes, oh, they're the party of what I'd grown up in, so they must be correct. So people just take things as it is and not really challenge it because they're so used to, oh, the D next to your name, I trust you. Um mm-hmm. Which accounts for why people are just so tuned out of politics, and I don't blame them because, again, San Francisco is the most expensive city in the union. I even argue sometimes the entire world, so missing uh, work is not exactly a luxury. Let me ask you a bit about what our elected officials may be missing. Iconic D3, tell me if I'm wrong, seems to focus on some key issues, homelessness, addiction, crime, police. Yes. What are your... What are your main concerns about what our current city government gets wrong and how do you think they should change course? See, the biggest, and I know people who come here and I, I even interact with people online who say that, oh, well, you guys voted for this, so you should just accept what you guys got. And they're right to an certain extent that, yes, we did vote for this stuff. We voted for the people who instigate it, but... A lot of us never knew exactly what the full policies were going to look like at the time. So that's where I kind of give a little wiggle room saying, yeah, we did make the mistake. But at the same time, a lot of people are just trying to live their lives day to day. And they like like me, they can't just depend on hope. They're given a good slogan and they go along with it. Now, where our elected officials drop the ball is they get major FaceTime from a small radical fringe groups in our city. And these groups have an incentive to keep things the way they are, if not make it worse, just so that their small sliver of groups can go ahead and benefit from the problems. So the problem is, again, if you're a worker who's working two jobs or one job, nine to five the whole day, you don't have time to go over to your local city hall board meetings or your local commission meetings and saying, hey, your policies, I actually disagree with. Like one thing for sure is 
about, I want to say a year or a half ago, we tried to modify our sanctuary city policy to allow the deportation of drug dealers. Well, the activists were able to go to the city hall meeting and say, no, 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 we want to be able to keep our drug dealers. But then, of course, a poll came out that showed that 70% of the city wants to deport drug dealers. So it's a matter of who is has the time and capability, and if one wants to say who's paid to actually show up at these meetings to push a certain agenda or a narrative that just contradicts what the majority of San Francisco actually wants. Well, you mentioned a moment ago the importance of who shows up. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the base of any democracy. And, and one of the reasons you have all these people rallying around you now is you've been one of the courageous people to actually show up. And the places you've shown up recently have been at meetings of the police commission and most notably meetings of the board of supervisors for public comment. I want to ask you about that. And I want to play a clip of one of your recent public comments so everybody's on the same page because you know many people may not be familiar with public comment. Can you tell us a little bit about what public comment is in San Francisco, who usually shows up and, and where it happens? Yes. So the public comment portion of City Hall, so they have an agenda every Tuesday set and their board meetings begin at 2 p.m. And what they do typically is at the very end, after they've made or passed legislation, they allow at least two minutes per person to come out and say exactly about what how they feel about really anything. Now, most notably in the past, we've had a lot of wackadoodles come up, but that is generally what's protected under the public comment rules. And... That's just your point where people can come in and say, hey, I feel this certain way. Not necessarily they're going to listen, but the typical type of individual that we see a lot at public comment are the far left fringes, the DSA types, the, uh, I call them lunatics, because if you really understand what they're saying, they really are lunatics. So I- I'm going to play a clip now of one of your public comments. Okay. Obviously, we're, we're in an audio only medium here. So for those of you at home, it's a video, but. Jay Connor is in the main room of City Hall. It looks like in front of you, you have the full board of supervisors up on their perch, and you are coming to the podium with a group of other folks behind you on the benches. Is that a fair description? Yes. We, since, like I said before, we're divided up by districts. We have 11 supervisors. 10 are usually centered around like a horseshoe, and the president of the board, who is second to the mayor, will be stationed at the very front. Okay, so here's the clip. This is uh, Jay Connor coming up to the podium to speak to the supervisors on their U-shaped perch. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Connor B. Ortega, and I'm a co-president of Iconic D3 in District 3. I firstly want to start off by saying thank you, Mayor Breed, for the updates of all the progress we're making. But recently, I've had the pleasure to meet so many incredible San Francisco in all 11 districts. And because they can't come here today since they work a 9-to-5 job, I bring their message to you, and it is as follows. We, San Francisco, are tired of having millionaire supervisors who live in fancy neighborhoods try to dictate to us, the actual working class, how to be good citizens. We have had enough of our city being systematically destroyed by national socialists, and their band of lunatics who scream into this microphone demanding we accept their subjugation of our home to an ideology they can't constantly keep following themselves. We are done with the worst people trying to tell the rest of us how to be compassionate, good human beings. 
We, the people of the city of San Francisco, will no longer allow the policymakers in this chamber go unchallenged. So often elected officials speak on behalf of a city that neither asked nor approves of their messages. We fired three school board members and a DA. We can always fire supervisors, mayors, and judges if we need to. A good friend of mine, Erica Sandberg, always says, Viva la San Francisco. And supervisor... The tide is turning against your policies because you chose ideology over intelligence. You have failed the good people of both District 9 and the city of San Francisco. And if that makes you too sad to do your job, then resign and allow our mayor to pick someone who can bring safety to your district. Supervisors, mayor, and all, you better get used to seeing my face and hearing my voice because I'm not giving up on this city. As a 20-year former homeless person, I started with nothing, but will fight for what I have now. Thank you. Hey, you. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> that was very well said. There's a ton in there. My first question, obviously, the person swearing at the very end was not you. No. Uh, who, who, who was that uh, articulate, articulate voice? She was the one whose video went viral all over social media, who was screaming into the microphone at city, uh, the city officials. That, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's, it's pretty hilarious. There was an, actually an actor in Hollywood who dubbed a song along with it, so it's actually pretty funny. But she has a history of behaving in this manner, but this is what I mean by when people come up to City Hall and express their extremist views and uh, essentially give the impression that the majority of city feels this way when, in fact, they don't. Yeah, sometimes the loudest voices seem like the majority. But uh, on the topic, so you were speaking facing to the supervisors. What were the supervisors doing as you were saying this to them? Normally, the supervisors, when people come up and give public comment, they typically just roam around, text on their phone, play games. But I have a history with each of the supervisors. I meet them at their events and challenge them on certain things. So as soon as I got up there, they were really attentive and paying attention. I can tell a few of them were a little concerned with how I... uh not afraid to go up to them and tell them that they're complete 100% wrong, and here's why. So they're really attentive. I give them that. The only one person who refused to look at me was the one specific supervisor. He's in the news now, but Dean Preston of District 5. He was the one who I... He's an officially a democratic socialist, and he was the one who I, in the video of those who see it online, had made a hand gesture pointing to him. Well, now, again, for the folks at home, I think I saw the hand gesture, and to be clear, you weren't doing anything wrong. You looked like you were actually quite effectively sort of with an open hand motioning to him in almost an inviting to engage kind of way. Yes. What does he do at that moment? As soon as I mentioned that, he looks away towards his computer and he refuses to look at me the entire time. All right. Well. Adults, we have these days, don't we? <laughs> No, I, I just, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, it's not a typical adult conversation. Usually when you engage somebody, they don't simply sit there and look away waiting for you to do something, but okay. You know, you roll with what you get. All right. Well, it, it sounds like an interesting, if not surreal experience. Let me ask you about the substance. In the comment itself, you mentioned um, D9 and the supervisor for D9. So I assume we're talking about Hillary Renan. What does she get wrong about the state of the city and what 
What do you wish she would do to change course with her vote? See, I give credit to Dean Preston for being a hard ideologue and will stand by his principles. Now, the problem with Supervisor Ronan is she goes back on her policies really quickly and it really sets everyone up for failure. So an example of this is she was one of the original callers of defund the police in the very beginning when it was cool and savvy. And there was a meeting where she was in where she says that uh, we need more police. And it it's bothersome, especially to elected officials, because a lot of them, they tend to forget that even though they're elected by district, they still represent the entire city. Mm-hmm. And how they vote affects everybody, regardless of what affiliation you are, whether you're a Republican, whether you're independent, whether you're a Democrat, the policies of these individuals affect everybody. And when you have leaders who at least will change their mind once they get enough public pressure, or you'll have elected officials who will stick to their guns. There are those individuals like Ronan herself who will just quickly change things in the middle of a meeting, and it just infuriates everybody, both sides, really. When you say change things in a meeting, as in like table issues, or what are we talking about? She will go in saying one thing, and then in the middle of the meeting, go back and change her stance, and then completely change it again. So it's really hard to like, get her down on a specific issue or policy that she'll support. So, mm. which is the reason why uh, I had to make mention to her that yes, we are unhappy with your policies because there was a previous meeting where she came up. I'm just talking all this. Uh, I talk a lot as you can tell, but there was a previous meeting where she had rose up and said, she didn't care whether the political tide was turning. She didn't care if certain neighbors want certain things and didn't want certain things. So my statement on that regard was to remind her that there is a reason why the tide is turning. There is a reason why your neighbors don't agree with you. And this is why, because they no longer like your policies. It's not you personally, they don't like, it's just the fact that you keep changing your mind on so many things. And I, I don't blame anyone for wanting to change your mind on policies, but at the rate that she changes her mind on things, it's just like, can you just sit down, take a breath and figure out what you want, please, for me, Mm -hmm. a D3 resident, do it for me. And and you know, you make a good point, right? Like if we want a democracy, and it seems to be an underlying theme of our conversation today that we want a democracy and we want a democracy where people have the courage and the ability to change their mind in the face of evidence. And it seems like you've been an exercise in courage and changing your mind in the face of evidence. We, We have to have a distinction between criticizing an idea and criticizing a person. And to be adult enough to realize that when somebody takes issue with our our idea, that's not an issue with our identity or us as people. And as adults, we need to be able to talk about ideas critically. So I'm disappointed that you didn't get that kind of engagement from her. Which is the, the, the volatileness of politics today, which is why so many people are so eager to just block it out and pretend it doesn't affect them personally. Because it just gets so toxic. And that's just with the culture today and what goes on, especially in things that are not traditionally politics and protests and such as that. So you would think that in a city to where politics shouldn't really matter because we're just focused on what works in a city and what doesn't. But then when you start to even you start to add in all these extra little, oh, because they said this about me, I cannot talk to this person at all. It doesn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You also, in your speech, your comment, I mean, it was so dense. There was, we, we could talk all day about it. I'm not going to make you, but you also mentioned ideology. I, I want to read you a quote from The Atlantic last year. The Atlantic ran an article after the Boudin recall 
It was written by Nellie Bowles, and she said this. The reality is that with the smartest minds and so much money and the very best of intentions, San Francisco became a cruel city. It became so dogmatically progressive that maintaining the purity of the politics required accepting, or at least ignoring, devastating results. What do you think of that? Has San Francisco become a cruel city as a result of its needing to cling to ideology? The reason why I hold San Francisco so dear is because San Francisco is the only city that has adopted me as a former homeless person. And I will do whatever I can to help save the city of San Francisco. But San Francisco used to be the city to where no matter how weird you were, no matter what your identity was, no matter where you came from, whether you're from a red state, a blue state, New York, Miami, you came here and you everyone accepted you. They didn't may tolerate your behavior, but they definitely said that you can come here and make something of yourself if it is, of course, within legal parameters. But nowadays, with everything becoming so polarized and the capture of our cities to ideologues, and it, it's just become a complete shamble. I mean, the one thing that affects everyone is safety. Safety, and this is the reason why Chester Boudin was removed from as a district attorney, was he didn't understand that safety affects everybody of all skin tones, of all backgrounds, of all languages, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, we all have the ability and of course the concern of being killed by either a homeless person, by someone we know, or by anyone. Like safety is just a major thing that people have to get right if they want people to if they want to prove to people that their ideas work. Now, with an ideology that is so hell bent on you do it my way or there's no way, then everything is open season for policy wise. You can attack this and say, no, no, no. We'll allow this bad behavior because our ideology says you're bad. And because you're bad, doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter what evidence you prove, doesn't matter what results you can give, it doesn't matter. We're right, and our ideas say we're right, and that's it. <sighs> well, let me ask you this, and it's a, it's a question that at the Briona Society, we, we typically ask every guest on the podcast. If you were elected mayor, and you had a supermajority on the board of supervisors. So you had behind you a board of supervisors that was going to pass any legislation that you proposed. What would be your first act? What would you put highest on the to-do list to help change course for the city if you were mayor? Our greatest sin is mismanagement. What I propose, and this is if I was mayor, we were to take one of our huge empty spaces, Oracle Park, Angel Island, Treasure Island, even Apollo Field and Golden Gate, we will set up a FEMA-type um, rescue center, a treatment center. It will be where we can take our homeless, we can take our addicts, we can separate them based on, are you homeless because you have a drug problem or are you homeless because you can afford the rent? If you can afford the rent, there's always ways we can find to help you get, we can help you get a job, we can help you with housing, we can help you all this kind of stuff. But if you are drug addicted, there is no way that you're going to be able to have any type of stable life if we don't address your addiction. So we will separate you depending on what drug you're on. Are you on meth? Are you on fentanyl? Are you on coke? What What is your drug problem? And we will create a specified drug plan to help treat you. You mentioned providing 
substance-specific addiction help, which just seems so intuitive and so obvious. Yes. But, and most people I think would assume that San Francisco does that. They would assume that if somebody is on the street struggling with addiction, there's a, a door with a glowing neon sign offering free treatment and it's obvious and easy. Is that true right now in San Francisco? The answer is no, and that's because we have so many nonprofits that are geared specifically towards maintaining the drug problem rather than actually eradicating it. And that's just because it goes back to the simple fact that these organizations and their members just want to make money. Jay Connor, I want to pivot quickly because I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this very awesome thing. I've been raving about your Twitter, and I guess we're calling it X now. I've been raving about your X account. You have on your profile, a, a snake emoji, a dash and the word dad. So it, it reads snake emoji dash dad. Yes, I have to ask, I, what's that about? Tell me about that. So I, I love dogs. Yes. You know, good pet person, but I am a huge serpent fan. I love snakes. And I had rescued a ball python and her name is Barcelona. She gets a little prissy and she's a little attitude, but you know, you love your pet. She uh, is a rescue ball python. Her former owner was very neglectful and she was really thin and unhealthy. And I, her beady little eyes just melted my heart, my cold, cold heart. And uh, I adopted her and uh, we, she's, she's, pretty thick and big and she's thriving very well. I'm I'm a snake dad. I tell people too. Like, why do you have a snake emoji? I'm like, I'm a snake dad. I saw the picture online. She looks like she's very happy. You know, I live in San Francisco, but she doesn't eat dead mice. She refuses at all costs. So I have to go all the way to Berkeley to go pick them up and bring them back. And then she just gets super excited. Um, I even had to replace her tank about three times because she got so big so quickly and I just had to control her feeding schedule because she was just crazy eating everything. I'm like, slow down. I mean, I'm a, I, I love eating, but she's a whole other beast. That, that's part of the challenge of being a parent. You have to teach moderation. Oh, and let me tell you, every time I go in to water her plants, she thinks it's food. And she comes out. I'm like, no, no, no. Food is Wednesday. You have to wait. You can't get dessert yet. You just got to wait. And then, of course, you get that typical... Because the one thing I do with her since I've been with her for so long is... When I come home, I just shout out, I'm home, Barcelona. And then she comes out of her rock and we have a staring contest. She comes up, she gets so aggressive and I stare her down and then she returns back to the rock. She's okay, I've given up. So like children, you've got to discipline them in some way, shape or form. And that's my discipline with her. She's got to know who the alpha is. It's that simple. It's respect. It's, yeah. uh, she knows she'll get the benefits and she'll get the treats, but she got to not bite the hand that feeds you, even though she's nicked mm-hmm. me twice, even though I try to water her plants, but that's okay. Is there any chance that Barcelona comes along to a board of supervisors comment? I definitely will have to take, I will definitely try. Um, I do I'm not sure if it's allowed. I'll be honest. I did oh, not what? think to look this one up. Maybe there's some ordinance that like snakes welcome. I mean, if they allow half the stuff that's said at the board of supervisors and all the crude, horrendous things, then I wouldn't be surprised if a snake just popped up one day. But who knows? I do have a carrier bag for her when I take her to the park. And uh, so possibilities, we'll never know. Fantastic. Well, Jay Carter, I, no doubt... A huge number of our listeners today are going to want to keep up with your thinking if they're not already following you online already. For those who are new to your thinking, what is the best way to keep in touch with you and what you're doing here in the city? So 
I, I'm really big on conversations. I've unlocked my DMs on all my social media accounts, specifically X. If you have any comments you want to send me, whether positive, negative, or even the most crude, I grew up with siblings. I can take the heat. Come at me, bro. But I always want to encourage people, if you are confused or you want to know where I stand on certain issues, I myself am not Einstein. I admit that I'm not the world's smartest person. So if you bring something to me that definitely uh, gives me a second thought, I'm really open about it. I say, oh yeah, I believe this. I've done this. I've been a part of this organization in the past, but my eyes were opened and I now believe in this and I have no problem being wrong, even though half of the things I post online make it look like I'm always full of myself. But definitely everyone is always open and welcome to interact with me online. I, I specifically use X a lot only because it's right there in real time. And if something happens, especially in San Francisco, because something is always happening. Um, X is the best way to interact with me. And like I said, I invite the conversations onto my threads. I, and I mean, I can't speak for those who also jump onto the threads and want to just get so irritated who I tag and they just mute it. But other than that, I enjoy the conversation with people. I, and I don't care if you're a Republican, as I'm a proud Democrat. I don't care if you're a Republican. I don't care if you're independent. I don't care if you're a Democrat. I don't care if you're a conspiracy theorist. Tell me everything that you want me to know, and I'd be happy to have a conversation with you. It does not matter. Well, Jay Connor B. Ortega, you're a fantastic person to have a conversation with. I can now attest to that personally, and I appreciate it. We need more conversations, and we need more open minds in this day and age. So thank you so much. Well, you know, the typical statement I always heard, not to just, you know, add more onto this, but the typical thing I always heard was in order in the marketplace of ideas, the best way to destroy bad ideas is with better ideas. And the one thing I'm so proud about calling the United States my home is that the marketplace of ideas are always flow they're they're flooding through. We have people from all over the world who come in and give ideas. We have people who grow up and give ideas. And the one thing I'm always told is that the older generation does not guarantee wisdom and the youth does not guarantee innovation. That's why we need both. Jay Connor B. Ortega, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for speaking with us at the Briona Society. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. I'm always welcoming to people who want to hear certain opinions, whether they like it or not. Let's do it again soon. Thank you. Good evening, supervisors. For those who don't know me, my name is Jay Connor B. Ortega, and I'm co-president of Iconic D3. I'm here because Gina, Jackie, Tanya from the Mothers Against Drug Deaths, Karina Velasquez, myself, and so many more others to name spent time outside this building writing only a small fraction of the names of people whose lives were cut short because of the inaction of this chamber to save their lives. Before, it was all like the people themselves were washed away hours later. Instead of figuring out how to shut down the drug markets we have on our streets and arresting, with some cases leading to deportation of drug dealers, voices on this board are trying to figure out how to keep the drug dealer market thriving by feeding them our neighbors and residents as customers, including newcomers who come here for these drugs as well. Paired with those voices are those who have a financial incentive to model our city off of the New York model, even though the New York model is both illegal and has been proven to be an abysmal failure in solving the drug problem.
Those who champion drug consumption sites always scream, we reverse an overdose. But the question is, how many times must we reverse an overdose in a single person before we are convinced that the person needs treatment and to get clean? Of course, the drug enablers will say it doesn't matter how many times they overdose. The point is only to maintain the problem, not to solve it. The sad part is, in San Francisco today, it is more profitable to keep addicts the way they are rather than getting them clean and sober. Drug dealers and drug consumption enablers have an incentive to keep our sons, daughters, husbands, wives, and neighbors addicted. One sells the addition, addiction and the other one maintains the addiction. We, the city of San Francisco, is rapidly losing trust to solve those like to solve the problem. Can you do the plan or must be someone else can do it? Good afternoon, board. As sure that all of you know me already, my name is J. Connor B. Ortega and I'm co-president of Iconic D3. I've spoken to a lot of working class residents and tourists who are trying their very hardest to make their experience here in San Francisco the best one ever. It used to be where small shop owners had nightmares in their sleep, but now the nightmare happens while they're wide awake at work. Smashed windows, property stolen, fronts vandalized, and in some cases, owners murdered. Our tourists are treated just as bad as residents are. These tourists are people who could have chosen anywhere in the world to spend their family time with, and they chose San Francisco. They came here with belongings, and they will leave without them. And why? Because out-of-touch leaders believe it's the fault of the people themselves that they became victims, not the fault of the perpetrators. Now, I used to be homeless for 20 years, and I never thought my biggest fear would be if the business I work at would be shut down because of the theft, because of the crime, and because of the inaction of this elected body whose job is the care and safety of this city. Some say that businesses have popped up around the city, and that's true, and that's good, but it's not enough if more are leaving rather than coming in only for new businesses to follow suit and leave as well. Now, we don't suffer the gun violence like Chicago or the constant chaos like New York, but we suffer from the emboldened criminals who keep committing crimes because members on this board would rather coddle them than contain them. This, to me, is very unacceptable. Fix these problems, or in 2024, the very people who reside in the city will do that. Thank you. Thank you.